0: These days, we take data for granted. After all, there are more data points on planet Earth than there are stars in the sky. On this show, we spend a lot of time thinking about how to harness this wealth effectively. Many data professionals struggle with an overabundance of information. And if you ask me, that's a great problem to have. Today, we're going to talk to a data scientist with the opposite problem, an incredible lack of data. Our guest is Tharik Shah, a data scientist at the Human Rights Data Analysis Group, also known as HRDAG. HRDAG is a nonprofit, nonpartisan organization that applies rigorous science to the analysis of human rights violations around the world. Their work takes them from war-torn conflict zones to the inner cities of the United States. But no matter their focus, they're often dealing with incomplete datasets, looking for information that no one is collecting. Over their 30-plus years of existence, the group has developed fascinating methodologies to address these issues. Today, we're going to discuss this important work and how they do it. With Dharic as our guide, we're exploring how data experts uncover human rights violations and how this field has evolved. It's a super thought-provoking conversation filled with valuable lessons for data radicals.
1: Welcome to Data Radicals, a show about the people who use data to see things that nobody else can. This episode features an interview with Tharik Shah, data scientist at HRDAG. In this episode, he and Satyan discuss HRDAG's work in Guatemala, police brutality, and the origins of HRDAG's pioneering methods. This podcast is brought to you by Alation. Our platform makes data easy to find, understand, use, and govern so analysts are confident they're using the best data to build reports the C-suite can trust. The best part? Data governance is woven into the interface, so it becomes part of the way you work with data. Learn more about Alation at alation.com.
0: One of H.R. DAG's earliest projects was in Guatemala. The country was recovering from a 36-year civil war that ended in 1996. In its aftermath... H.R. DAG helped to collect records of human rights violations. Their work paved the way for the conviction of Guatemala's former president, General Efrain Rios Montt, who was found guilty of genocide and war crimes. It was the first time a former head of state was found guilty of war crimes in their own country.
2: So my colleague Dr Patrick Ball was uh was in Guatemala working with human rights groups at the time. So Guatemala had an armed civil conflict that had lasted 30 uh 36 years I think. And so around the end of that time he was working with groups who were trying to document and preserve evidence of human rights violations that had occurred during the the, the uh, conflict. So Patrick and his team were doing a few different things, and a couple of them I think were important both for our work and for for the way human rights data is collected in general. In particular, they were interviewing survivors, which is a very common way of doing human rights work. So people describe events that they witnessed or experienced, and annotators will like read through those testimonies and extract incidents that are grave human rights violations. So things like Killings, uh, tortures, disappearances, and so forth. So the things that I mentioned that were somewhat novel about that work, one in particular was that at that time, they were relying on a number of different data sources rather than just using one as kind of the, the official kind of data source. So in addition to these interviews that they were conducting, they were collecting similar data from other human rights organizations in the area. They were also reading through newspaper articles from throughout the conflict and extracting uh, narratives of different human rights violations and encoding those two. The other, I guess, useful thing about that work at that time, they used the individual violation as the unit of analysis. So a common thing then and now is to record human rights violation at the level of the individual victim and an individual victim can be the victim of multiple human rights violations and for instance a person can be abducted tortured and then killed and when annotators are trying to roll that up to a single record and a single human rights violation a common practice is to uh, roll that up to what they consider the most serious violation so in this example i've given the killing and the fact that this person was tortured kind of uh, gets dropped from the by the time this uh, story has become data. And that has the effect of distorting patterns if you're particularly interested in understanding the use of torture during the conflict.
0: So what did data analysis look like in a war-torn country in 1996?
2: It was not like a big data effort. It was not a lot of machine learning. It was a a lot of handwork. It was databases on floppy disks that were backed up on multiple computers. Eventually, they found that because they were incorporating data from so many different data sources, they found a lot of instances where the same human rights violation had been reported by multiple different sources of of documentation. And so at that time, they dealt with that by writing some code to do data-based deduplication. But through that work, they started analyzing the pattern of overlaps. And eventually, a uh, they had the insight that this data that they had collected could be useful in a family of statistical methods known as multiple systems estimation. These tools are uh, known as capture-recapture methods. And the reason this is so important is because in most conflict situations. The data that we have access to is a convenience sample. It is never a complete enumeration of all of the violations that occurred because it's extremely difficult to collect that kind of data in the context of conflict. It is also not uh, necessarily a representative example of all that has occurred. And the reason that's such an important observation is that the questions that we seek to answer in human rights tend to be about patterns and comparisons. Think about like what you do when you're collecting evidence of human rights violations. You're doing interviews, perhaps you're like looking up information, doing various things to collect evidence. When does that process become the most difficult? uh, When the conflict is the most extreme, when it's not safe to go outside, when the power is out, and so forth. And so we see in many cases that when the violence is at its worst, the documentation of the violence can decrease or stay flat in any given source, right? So they knew about this issue and they were concerned because again, in human rights, the question when we're talking about accountability is about what actually happened, not just what had was documented, right? And so when they kind of discovered that the way they had collected data enabled this series of methods called multiple systems estimation, what that allows you to do is using the patterns of overlaps from observed data sources. It allows you to make estimates about the number of incidents that uh, occurred but were not documented. And this was like a huge kind of step forward. It is like kind of the birth of a lot of the methods that, that we continue to use throughout our work today.
0: Which is such an interesting lesson for a lot of the people who are doing analytical work, because on some level, one presumes all of this rich data collected, and then, you know, people, sometimes engineers, people who are not very familiar with the analytical process are making decisions about which features to extract in order to be able to understand the data better. And then in your case, I mean, one the data is really scarce and scant. And then the other part of it is you're now making really, really critical decisions about which features to extract. And then based upon that extraction mechanism, trying to figure out how that tells you about what you don't know and what you don't have. In my interview with General Stanley McChrystal, he made a great point. Sometimes we have data we don't know we have. Stanley and his team discovered trash bags full of electronics seized from enemy combatants. This was valuable intelligence that illuminated hidden behavior. For H.R. Dag, the discovery of a warehouse in Guatemala did the exact same thing.
2: I'll go back in time a little bit for another example, is the use of kind of administrative data. I think of it almost as like the exhaust generated by bureaucracies in order to identify evidence not only of human rights abuses, but also of command responsibility. So again in Guatemala, years after the conflict had ended, in fact, in, I think, 2005 or 2006, the government accidentally found an abandoned warehouse that turned out to be the historical historic archives of the Guatemalan National Police. This was a series of buildings. Inside, there was all of the paperwork generated by the Guatemalan National Police going back for oh, almost a century. These papers were were not super organized. They were tied in bundles of string because this building had been abandoned. Some of them were covered in rat or bat feces. They were kind of molding, etc. As soon as uh, human rights workers realized what it was, they knew it was going to be just a super important source of data for um, the kind of ongoing effort for accountability for the crimes of that conflict. So one of the things that happened after that is hr dag and others um, researchers went down and the archivists there estimated that it would take decades to read through all of these documents i think they there were so many they didn't measure them in pages they measured them in kilometers so it was like eight kilometers of paper or something like like stacked up you know and so one of the first things that that our team did was uh set up a sampling strategy a topological sampling strategy to get like a kind of representative sample of documents from this from this collection and so what that looked like for the people who were doing the sampling and review was you know they would get instructions that say like go into building two walk forward 15 feet take a left turn and go 12 feet and then the pile that you find in front of you look up 17 inches and pull you know, the documents out of that, and that's the sample, and so on and so forth. And there's actually, like, numerous papers written about, like, all the details that went into this sampling. But what that allowed them to do was to start to get a sense of what types of documents that this collection contained.
0: This Herculean work paid off. Hidden in these records was the proof that H.R. DAG needed to solve the mystery of a murder that had taken place 20 years earlier a couple of things happened.
2: One, historians identified documents that were describing a police raid that resulted in the disappearance of a student union leader named Edgar Fernando Garcia. The reason this was important was because since his disappearance, there had been no kind of official word about what had happened to him. The police denied any responsibility and said that he had probably been killed in some kind of gang violence or something and uh, they had nothing to do with it. His family continued to look for him. And so these documents suddenly shed light on on uh, what had happened to him because, because uh, the researchers had been doing this kind of larger analysis of the documents and the flow of documents. They extracted manually metadata from each document, who it was from, who it was to, when was it sent, that kind of thing as well as encoded any human rights violations that occurred within the body of the documents in a way similar to what I talked about earlier. So through that analysis, researchers were able to show not only that the police had this operation um, in the same exact place and time as Mr. Garcia was abducted, but also that this operation was not unique, that it was part of the pattern, and that operations like this had the normal flow of communication between superiors and subordinates, and was part of kind of bureaucratically the normal pattern of things. So because of that, they were able to bring this evidence against not only the police who had been respons- immediately responsible for the abduction, but at a later trial, they presented that evidence against the former chief of the Guatemalan National Police, Hector Bol de la Cruz. And in that trial, they were able to establish command responsibility for the dis- disappearance of Edgar Fernando Garcia based on this document analysis. And uh, he was also convicted for, for that crime, which is pretty, um, I don't know, it's, it's not easy to, to establish command responsibility.
0: So what does H.R. Dagg's work look like in 2022? Tharik and I discussed a project he's currently working on, an ongoing investigation of gender-based violence at the hands of Chicago police.
2: I'm going to rewind a little bit to the early 2010s. There was a woman named Diane Bond who lived in a housing complex known as Stateway Gardens. And Diane Bond was one day, she and her son were attacked and abused by a crew of Chicago police officers known as the Skullcap Crew. This crew of officers was well known among their victims. For abusing the residents of Stateway Gardens in a variety of ways and uh, with impunity, they have not been um, punished or taken off the force. So Diane Bond decided to take her experience to what was then the agency that did police oversight in Chicago, which was called the Office of Professional Standards. This complaint eventually grew into one lawsuit and then two lawsuits, know, known as Bond v. Utreras and Calvin v. Chicago. For our purposes, the imp- one important outcome of those trials was that the courts ruled that police misconduct data in Chicago is public information. So that was a very big moment. What it led to, well, it led to a large number of things. But one of the, the outcomes of that was the development of a website called CPDP. This is uh, hosted by the Invisible Institute, created and hosted by the Invisible Institute, and that is a website where you can look up police officer misconduct histories for Chicago PD officers. It was a huge step forward. Okay, so what's the problem? So if you go to CPDP, one of the things you will see is that for each complaint, there's a little button that allows you to submit a FOIA request. And uh, that was a really cool feature that the developers thought to add. And so it allows anybody to submit FOIA requests for additional documentation about any given incident that's described in the database.
0: What do you mean by a FOIA request? Because th- th- that I'm not familiar with that language and terms. So, so help define that too. Freedom
2: of Information Act request. So, uh, both federally and and most states have uh, various laws that make empower citizens to to request data from their government about important things. So, the reason we would want to make a FOIA request about one of these incidents is that the data that became public through Calvin v. Chicago and Bonne v. are these spreadsheets, basically. They have one row per incident, and all of the information about the allegation is, in a way, similar to actually what I described uh, my colleagues doing in Guatemala so many years ago, is... is, Is encoded into kind of a, da- in a into a data format, right? Because the allegation begins as, for instance, somebody walking into an office or going onto a web form and explaining what happened to them, and that explanation kind of becomes data through some various choices, including this thing called the primary category. So all of the entire allegation. Gets summarized down to one category, such as improper search of person or operations and personnel violation, conduct unbecoming of an officer, et cetera. So you might wonder what happens when when there are multiple violations, which we see a lot of in the database. An example I I remember seeing when I first started working with this data was officers entering a home unsolicited, holding, uh, pointing guns at all of the people who were there, and shouting racial slurs at them and taking their property, taking their wallets and stuff like this. And that entire incident got summarized to one category, which was theft of property, right? And that's just one example. So what these FOIA requests enable us to do is get uh, the supporting documentation, basically. The original, the testimony, any kind of investigative files that were opened by the oversight agency or the police about this incident, This can include, for instance, interviews with witnesses and include things like health records if somebody went to the hospital and stuff like that.
0: Even with the law in their favor, the Invisible Institute and HR DAG realized the power of a FOIA request could only go so far. But as they persisted with their work, an unexpected opportunity came up.
2: Our colleagues, or our partners at the Invisible Institute, in particular, uh, Trina Reynolds-Tyler, who's currently the director of data there, had already begun this investigation into gender-based violence, they were doing pretty deep reporting and, you know, interviewing people who had had experienced some kind of sexual violence at the hands of police. So this included, it was not limited to, things like public strip searches or groping and penetration that occurred under the kind of justification of a search, you know, various other like kind of sexual harassment and so forth. But what they were finding in this process when they were comparing kind of the documentation that they had put in records requests for with the data that was public was that there wasn't like a clear way to know just from the structured data which incidents were of this kind of gender-based or sexual nature. So for instance, a lot of the types of incidents that I just alluded to were getting coded as an improper search of person. And so the, you know... <laughs> <laughs> the The fact that, you know, and so if you're trying to do this, this deep analysis of of sexual violence, you run into this block. Additionally, they were limited in terms of how many documents they could request from the city. So uh, there's an important exception in the FOIA law, which is called undue burden, meaning if the public agency, if it would be too much of a burden for them to produce these uh, records, that is one reason they can deny it. And so, roughly what we were able to do at that time was get around fifteen documents for around fifteen incidents per week, and so you know we were there's there's tens of thousands of these incidents a year, and we were we were kind of butting our heads against this problem of trying to figure out which ones to request, which like if you think about it too long, is just like a deeply interesting problem.
0: Yeah, it's a sampling problem, right? I mean, it's like being an auditor and you're basically looking at this case, crooked, crooked account of. So, so, so you, so you basically developed this competency in forensics and auditing, which is crazy. Exactly. So meanwhile, while we were trying
2: to figure out this tough problem, you know, and we were kind of trying different strategies. and We were trying to like, make sure that like we, uh, you know, there's like the explore and the exploit as you do the sampling and so forth. But while we were doing that, there was another case that was kind of working its way up the Illinois court system. So this case is uh, also a freedom of information lawsuit, and it was brought by a man named Charles Green. Charles Green was wrongfully incarcerated as a teenager, and uh, he was incarcerated, I think, for, for uh, 20 or 30 years. He has been released and continues to, um, this lawsuit that he had brought against the city was to make all of these, well, One of the things he had requested was uh, that all of this misconduct information, including the, the investigatory files, should be fully public information. We shouldn't have this kind of 15 a week bottleneck. So we knew about this case and Trina and I in particular, along with Patrick, my colleague, had been having conversations about what we would do if we had all the documents, you know, like that we, that would really expand our ability to do this investigation. And we'd, uh, Patrick and I had had some success using machine learning to kind of sift through large amounts of kind of uh, text data in the past on different projects and had told Trina about this. And she was like, "Could could we use that to do this kind of work?" And we're like, "Yeah, we should definitely try it." But this was all hypothetical. In 2020, in early 2020, as the Green v. Chicago case was making its way up the courts, the city, for whatever reason, just missed a filing deadline. They were supposed to file like a kind of like a a piece of paperwork that's supposed to like give them extra time to to prepare their defense or whatever, and they just didn't. They missed the deadline. And as a result of that, the judge kind of by default made the documents in question from 2011 through 2015 public. So the documents that Green has requested and that those court uh, that case is still in court right now and it's headed towards the Illinois Supreme Court are for documents going back to 1967. We don't have that, but what we do have is this slice from 2011 to 2015. That became the source for this investigation. Because we suddenly had all of these documents, we expanded kind of the scope of the investigation to a variety of types of violations that disproportionately affect women and non-binary people. So this includes kind of the sexual violations that I described before, as well as things like neglect, home invasion, policing of parents and children when they're together, uh, as well as like targeting of people based on, uh, of LGBTQIA people or disabled people. And so, so we, you know, kind of set out to, to build this machine learning classifier. A small problem before we were able to do that was that what we received were like hundreds and hundreds of thousands of pages of scanned documents. Some of them included like embedded audio in the PDF. Like it, it was like very just very unstructured.
0: Embedded audio in the PDF. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah, um, A dream for a (laughs)
2: data (laughs) analyst. And they included like, you know, pictures and, uh, you know, it's a bunch of scanned administrative documents from a couple of different large bureaucracies. You can imagine kind of how messy it is. And so we actually went through like a pretty detailed process. And this has been ongoing work that I've been involved in. As well as uh, folks from the Invisible Institute, as well as uh, importantly, some volunteers, including from an organization known as the Lucy Parsons Lab in Chicago. And we have we have been working for some time on processing these documents, extracting bits of structured information that we can use to index and search through them. And so before we could really do anything in terms of this gender-based violence investigation, we had to figure out how to get from these, like this mess of documents to what we ended up focusing on was several of the different types of documents that exist in that collection contain a section that has a narrative description of the allegations. In some cases, these are in the first person. These are allegations that the person submitted via web form, for instance. In some cases, they are short summaries of the allegations written by the person doing the intake when the complaint happens. But in any case, these proved to be richer sources of information about what was alleged to have happened than those primary categories codes that we had access to before.
0: What are the insights that all of the work has generated and, and how prevalent is this? Like, I mean, how many, what percentage of officers in this Chicago PD, for example, are have violations reported and how distributed is this problem?
2: So we've created a website called btservice.com, and that's where we are like in an ongoing way presenting as we find them and confirm them some of the findings from this work. And as we work our way through them, we're kind of reporting our findings from each of these categories. What we've been able to report on to start with are specifically, we've done some deep reporting on allegations of neglect. These are incidents where people have come to police for help for something and have been denied that help. In particular, we've done a lot of reporting on instances of neglect following a sexual assault and following domestic violence. So these are people coming to the police and saying, I was assaulted, or I um, am at risk because of this domestic violence. And we're either, in the case of rape, are are blamed for what happened to them, or told that they are lying or making this up. Uh, Similarly, with these incidents of domestic violence, people who are, again, like the police are treating them poorly, laughing at them. And we found, importantly, many instances of these. And so we talk about patterns of violations. One of the things that like, folks who have been reading these documents have either complained about or just observed is that over time, they they start to feel like they're reading the same allegation over and over again. And in fact, you know, we go and check and then there are different allegations. It's just that uh, similar things happen to different people in different places. So we talk. uh, it's important for us to talk about these patterns of violation because they point to shared experiences that people in Chicago are having uh, across time.
0: As the team worked through this incredible quantity of data, they began to see how widespread these systemic issues were. They also discovered some surprising findings.
2: When we started this work, I at least, I can't speak for others, thought about those kinds of sexual violations that I described at the beginning as specifically targeting women. What we found through, because we used this these search tools to, to uh, search through them, was that they were happening often to men, to Black men in particular. So Trina, one of the things that she's been really big on from the get-go was constantly having this work be in conversation with the community in particular, with Black people who live in Chicago and people who are most affected by this type of violence. And so she'd been having, even before we had any real findings, like community meetings and um, events to talk about the work, talk about what we had seen so far, and ask people things like, are we asking the right types of questions? What are we missing? What part of the story are we not getting? That kind of thing and so when we started to notice those reports that this kind of violence was affecting black men she had like a a meeting that was specifically only for black men so that people could so that the uh, people who came could like speak freely about their own experiences without kind of maybe feeling ashamed or worried
0: yeah but to, but to be clear that's just good science right i mean on some level you had a hypothesis and you found data that changed your hypothesis which is sort of exactly what we would hope for you know, what strikes me about your work is that you're a data scientist. And I think from the outside in, you hear the words data scientist and you think about statistical techniques and mathematics and neural nets and all of these like really highbrow math and computing tools that people would use on a day-to-day basis. And your work what percentage of your time are you spending doing that kind of work? Like, is that, is that where you're spending your time and effort? Because it strikes me that nothing you're talking about lives in that world. Most of it lives in the world of just trying to establish what is fact. (laughs) Um, I don't have a good percentage breakdown for you, but my role in
2: particular actually is, is, um, definitely on the the nerdier side of the spectrum for uh for for the work that's involved overall in human rights cases. So I personally do spend a lot of time doing the kind of things that you might imagine. I write a lot of code. I write a lot of machine learning code these days. That said, it is different in a variety of ways like you were saying, like we don't we don't start with the assumption that we have all of the relevant data, which I think is like in some of my previous training before this role, like there's kind of like a baseline assumption, like how do I fit a neural network, and the you're, you're assuming that the training data is representative of the data on which this this uh, model is going to be deployed at some point. That's less true for me, but yeah, I don't uh, I <laughs> I spend most of my time writing code. I should be like fully clear about that. Mostly. It is spent
0: doing the things that we consider as data science, which is which is great, and yet the way in which you're able to do that, or the data gathering process through which you're able to do that, is super manual. And, you know, what's also, I think, really interesting is it requires a lot of judgment. And I imagine you are, in that feature definition process, fairly vocal and active in at least framing the questions for what people should be looking for and what the findings are. And that probably, it, it sounds like it's a super iterative process. Is that... Is that fair to say?
2: It's definitely iterative. Our work is really dependent on kind of relationships with our partners. And one of the skills that we try to cultivate among ourselves is kind of in those meetings, listening and being able to tease out questions that can be addressed through quantitative analysis. And so, you know, our partners may not necessarily come with a fully fleshed out, like, here is the exact data analysis question we have, and here is how we will know that the answer that we have the right answer or something like that. And so it's definitely like iterative, like you said, going back and forth. This is what we're seeing. Are we looking for the right things? Does this make sense?
0: It's so much fun to listen to your story because there are so many themes that I think apply to data science work writ large. And a lot of times, and many of the data science jobs were obviously born in fully digital companies where you're watching people on the web and they're clicking things and they're gathering this massive stream of data and you have so much data that it's easy to formulate any question. But in your case, you have the exact opposite circumstance. You are looking for patterns and things that are really, really hard to prove where the data sets itself are perhaps faulty in many cases and certainly understated in other cases. And so, you know, there's a, there's a, aspect of just with the organization, getting out of the building and not being satisfied with what you've got in order to satiate your curiosity. And that I think is really powerful. The other theme that I thought was really interesting was that you've got, you know, any photograph, any audio file is sort of a partial representation of the truth. You don't have full resolution on a 360 degree view of anything that happened in the world. Like you can't play back what happened. And so there is a choice there, which you n- have nothing to do with, which is what evidence do I have? And then even within that, there's another analytical choice, which is what features am I choosing to extract? What questions can I choosing to ask? And depending on what your line of inquiry is, you know, you can say, oh, well, were people wearing red shirts are. Or- you know, I mean, there's a million features that you can ask for. And so that is a judgment. And I think often people are given data sets and structured data sets and they are like, well, this is the data that I got and this is this is reality, this is what it says. And what they don't realize is that structuring of data, that assembly of that data set is a judgment call by somebody farther upstream. And that itself is kind of some form of an analytical exercise. And um, And you're very actively realizing that your line of inquiry starts at the event and you're trying to get sort of at full resolution of truth from the lens you see it, um, which I think is really exciting. And so you're just, so much of what you're describing is forensics work. And I think it's just super powerful to hear your story of getting out there and doing it and really being actively engaged with the subject matter and not taking no for an answer for the entire organization. The work HR DAG does is incredibly important, and I know many of you may feel motivated to donate money or volunteer your time. To close out the conversation, Dharik suggested a few ways you could help HR DAG and their partners.
2: Yeah, so I guess In general, money is always welcome. Uh, I mean, definitely do give to HRDAG if that's uh, that's what you're excited to do. But also for the types of organizations that I've been talking about today that we partner with, there's small nonprofits and human rights defenders in every community who are doing this kind of work to expose and hold accountable the powerful for their crimes. And so, in terms of like finding if this work kind of inspires you or this these goals kind of inspire you, like finding who's doing that kind of work in your own community the volunteer question is an interesting one it's like super important and some organizations that we work with have a uh, really good capacity to uh, intake and manage volunteers so i mentioned the lucy parsons lab in chicago and that's just one that i happen to have personal experience with and i just can't say enough good things about about the volunteers there and they're just doing really amazing work i know that there are other groups like that uh so if you're looking to plug in kind of trying to plug into networks like those, because that's, it's through those projects that you kind of learn what the work is about and you uh, develop the relationships that will help you kind of get really involved.
0: As Tharek mentioned, when war is at its worst, documentation disappears. In other words, the most egregious human rights violations are the least likely to be recorded. The fog of war leaves hazy memories. In this field, lack of data can be a data point in a larger pattern too. And thanks to pioneering work from folks like Tharik, we now have a system to fill in those blanks. Multiple systems estimation empowers researchers to predict the number of undocumented incidents that occurred. It's a crucial foundation in data work for human justice today. Who knows what other hidden patterns it will illuminate. To learn how you can support HRDAG's work, Please see the links show notes below. This is Satyan Sangani, CEO and co-founder of Alation. Thank you, Dharik and HR Dag, for sharing your powerful story, and thank you for listening.
1: Alation empowers people in large organizations to make data-driven decisions. It's like Google for enterprise data, but smarter. Hard to believe I know, but Alation makes it easy to find, understand, use, and trust the right data for the job. Learn more about Alation at alation.com.